Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. Today, I'm joined by Institute Director, Dr. Matt Grossman and MSU economist, Dr. Charlie Bowder. Later on, we'll be joined by our guest and former IPSER fellow, Simon Schuster, who now runs the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. But first, Matt and Charlie, plenty to talk about this week. Uh, big announcement about uh, General Motors' investment in the state of Michigan. Uh, and on the heels of that, the governor's uh, state of the state message, which was again brought to us uh, virtually uh, this year due to the pandemic. Um, how would you describe the governor's speech? Uh, it's an election year. Um, seems like she had uh, a lot of positive things to say about the state's direction, of course, and, and with some programs. Any thoughts on, uh, on, on what she had to say? Well, the, uh, the, the mood of the state is relatively sour uh, when it comes to survey results, but it didn't uh, sound that way uh, from Governor Whitmer's speech. Uh, she did her best uh, to note the, the positives. Uh, it was in the atmosphere of, I think, the third Democratic speech to cars rather than people. So uh, it, it was hard to escape that background, uh, but she did her best. She said the word bipartisan, I think, three or four times. Uh, she pointed uh, out that the state has uh, a surplus and more money to give away uh, in the form of tax cuts and uh, benefits. Uh, so those are uh, good things to be able to do from an election year uh, perspective. Uh, and, uh, you know, she it does have, uh, obviously, not just the announcement this week, uh, but a recent record of uh, working with the legislature uh, to actually pass things that she was able to tout. Charlie, let's, uh, let's talk about some of those proposals. You're an economist, lots yep. of tax cuts floating around right now. Yes, uh, you know, and I, uh, I, I disclaimer, uh, I, uh, Governor Whitmer re represented me in, in the state legislature for 14 years, and I know her personally and uh, am generally supportive. And there was a lot of, that I that I like in the in, uh, in in the speech and in the the policy environment that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, the emphasis on uh, more help for those with mental health challenges. I think that's something that all across the country were long overdue. Um, uh, and uh, more education funding, um, which I hope will at least partially cut, uh, cut back into the losses of education that many of our children have suffered during the COVID years. Um, I'm also, you know, uh, on this program, many times I've made statements about how the, um, Affluent in Michigan have done very well in the last 40 years, the middle class and poor Michiganders not so well. So I'm, I'm happy about the proposal to reinstate the earned income tax credit. The one that I didn't like is one that would actually put more money in my pocket, but I don't feel like I need it. And that's uh, repealing the pension tax. Um, be, before we started taxing some retirement income, uh, 11 years ago, 95% uh, of Michigan seniors paid no income tax. And on net, because of some credits, Michigan seniors paid less than nothing. Now, after the changes of 11 years ago, Michigan seniors pay a little bit. It's still, it is still true that affluence retirees, um, in many cases, pay way less 
than working people who are making only half as much or a third as much. And um, so that's one that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, although I understand the political uh, 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 that it may be uh, politically popular, but I, I, I as as y'all know, I'm kind of on the cusp of retirement, and I don't believe that my obligations to the state will stop when I retire. So uh, that that's the one that I don't like, but much to like in terms of the uh, uh, education funding and uh, and a lot of other things. And you know, the the uh, GM announcement is is good news. You know, when we talk about uh, tax cuts, too, obviously the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature have vastly different ideas about which taxes to cut. I, I believe the, the day of the speech, the uh, Republican uh, Senate committee, uh, state Senate committee, moved out a, a cut to the corporate income tax and the personal income tax. And, and I, I think I heard one of the Senate uh, Republican leaders say that, you know, we have to be careful about uh, you know, uh, further uh, improvements to the EITC or other such programs because they have long-term implications as if to say that cutting the corporate income tax or the personal income tax has no long-term implications. Those proposals for cutting the personal income tax would lose a lot more revenue um, than some of the things that the governor is, uh, is on board with. And so I, I agree, you know, we, we're in a point a temporary moment after decades of very tight budgets, we're in a moment where because of federal injections of money, the budget is a little rosier. I don't think this is the time to give away huge amounts of, of revenue because that'll really constrain us in the future. Well, as we move into budget discussions, uh, now with the state of the state out of the way, budget to be announced on February 9th, the state has between federal funding and its own budget surplus, ten billion extra dollars to allocate. Uh, so there is uh, a, there is certainly a bit more money uh, floating around, and that's always a, a fun thing for uh, the governor and uh, legislators. Of course, I recall when when uh, Governor Blanchard noted that legislators have a tendency to spend like drunken sailors. So we'll have to see uh, how that all turns out. There was some uh, consternation amongst public health officials that there was very little mention of COVID. The governor did not remind people to get a vaccine or mask up. I, I, I think the least she did was uh, uh, applaud our uh, public health workers and frontline workers and the like. Anything, anything to the fact uh, that she shied away from COVID, Matt, politically? Well, the state is uh, done uh, trying to make adjustments uh, in the face of, of COVID. Uh, the mobility data shows that we're back to pre-pandemic uh, levels of uh, mobility. Uh, the Governor Whitmer uh, was clear that she wanted schools to be open. She didn't uh, mention any uh, proposed uh, closures or, or restrictions uh, or even emphasize uh, personal uh, a risk uh, aversion strategy. So uh, she is uh, playing to the, the change in, in the crowd. Uh, if we get to uh, November and uh, COVID does seem to be in the rear view mirror, uh, then, then all of that will, will pay off uh, because she'll uh, sort of get credit for seeing us uh, through without getting uh, attacked uh, for the continued imposition of any restrictions. Uh, but if it doesn't, uh, then it, it is just going to look like uh, we changed policy, even though conditions didn't uh, change uh, all that much. 
Uh, and she still is vulnerable. I know it seems like a long time ago uh, for Democrats, but you can see uh, in Boris Johnson in the UK that stuff that happened in 2016 still matters. So she is going to, um, I mean, sorry, in, in 2020 still matters. She's going to get attacked uh, for uh, not abiding by her own restrictions uh, at the bar. Uh, she's going to get attacked for her husband making a call to get his boat out. Uh, and people don't like uh, hypocrisy when it comes to these COVID restrictions. Uh, and Republicans are going to use that to their advantage. Uh, at the moment, you see uh, she's doing uh, pretty well in our surveys. Uh, people also expect her uh, to be reelected uh, by uh, that. Most people uh, expect her to be reelected, both in uh, the uh, Policy Insider survey that we run and in the public survey that we run. Uh, national uh, projections uh, show her more uh, vulnerable because uh, Michigan is about two points to the Republican side of the national average, and Republicans are winning the generic House vote by uh, two points as well. Uh, so she's going to have to have a substantial uh, personal vote if things stay the same way. That is people who uh, might favor Republicans on a national level. Uh, but uh, are okay with Governor Whitmer's uh, uh, strategy. And she knows that. Uh, and so she sought uh, to, to uh, make her moderation clear and her bipartisanship clear. We'll, we'll have to wait and see if it's enough once we get to election time. Most people, not just in Michigan, but everywhere are, are, are tired of COVID. And many have just made the decision that they're um, going to move much more in the direction of going about their daily activities like they did before. Uh, um, um, for those of us who are vaccinated and boosted, that cause, like, like I think probably most of the people on this call, um, that carries some risk, but not an enormous risk. For those who are not vaccinated, um, there's, a, there's a great deal of risk. And um, uh, the, lattice, the last the factoid that I saw was that the unvaccinated are 21 times as much as the vaccinated to die of COVID. Uh, so uh, even though she didn't emphasize it very much, let me emphasize it right here. Please, if you haven't already get, been vaccinated, please, please do so. It'll, it might save your life and it might save the life of your loved ones. So Matt, politically, it sounds like uh, the, the themes about this election might center on the governor being positive about the state's direction, the economy, uh, picking up steam, the GM announcement, of course, the legislature uh, and the governor agreeing to uh, a package of uh, development incentives. And yet the Republicans might come back, come on the backside and said, well, the economy isn't doing as well. And the governor's, you know, mandates early on really hurt. And, you know, it almost sounds like she's going to be talking positively and they're going to be talking negatively about where we're at. How do you think that's going to impact the public? Well, the other long-term trend, of course, is nationalization. Uh, the uh, correlation between presidential vote and gubernatorial vote is above 0.9 now. It's on a very long-term uh, trajectory upward. Uh, that's also true that state of the state addresses actually are sounding more like state of the union addresses over time. They use some of the same uh, language uh, and they uh, hit the same uh, partisan points. So it's just hard uh, to separate uh, the governor uh, election from uh, the national race. Uh, the 
and of course, the trends are that the president's party tends to lose uh, seats in the midterm election. Uh, and so uh, that means that Governor Whitmer ran her first election when the winds were moving towards the Democrats and will have to win her second when the winds are moving towards uh, the Republicans. So we also have a long running trend where the incumbent uh, does well in Michigan gubernatorial elections. So it's sort of the, the combination of those two trends. Does she get any credit? Uh, for incumbency, uh, or do we go with the national trends? The thing I would caution people, though, is to say right now, well, it doesn't look like any of the Republican candidates are uh, catching fire. Uh, maybe they don't have anybody to put up. That's the kind of thing that does change by November. Partisans tend to get behind their nominee. Uh, and so uh, whether or not Republicans have settled on one now, um, by November, uh, they are going to be behind whoever the nominee is. Well, let's talk for a minute about partisans getting behind their candidate. Uh, Governor Whitmer had a primary uh, four years ago from the left, uh, and there are many on the left that are not satisfied with her, uh, some of her actions or inactions, whether it has to do with auto insurance reform or line five, for instance. Uh, is she in trouble of having people sit on their hands come November, some of her supporters? Well, she's in trouble, but not for those reasons. People, uh, people uh, are, uh, in the end, they get behind their party. Governor Whitmer may not look left enough for some people, but she's going to look a lot more left than the Republican candidate. Uh, so that generally is, is not a, an issue. And in fact, it's the reverse relationship. Uh, people are motivated to vote against an extremist on the other side. Uh, and so it's actually uh, more likely that turnout would be stimulated by an, an extreme Republican candidate uh, than that it would be hurt by uh, Governor Whitmer's uh, moderation. Uh, but uh, she is in trouble overall because a, a, a whole lot fewer people vote in midterm elections and turnout tends to go in the same direction that swing voters do. There's not a trade-off. And so in 2018, that means that as uh, swing voters were swinging towards Democrats, turnout was also swinging towards Democrats. People were motivated to turn out against Donald Trump and the national Republicans. Governor Whitmer benefited from that. This time, if people are motivated to vote against Biden and the Democrats nationally, Governor Whitmer will be hurt by that. We might like to believe that everybody is out there making decisions on the basis of things like Line 5 and uh, the auto insurance, but uh, that's an extremely small proportion of the population, and those people are generally clear partisan Democrats or Republicans, so they're not really the swing voters. The swing voters are the people who are paying very little attention to what's happening at the state level and are, are usually following those national trends. Even though... Um... Uh, we saw the, the unusual uh, phenomenon uh, back in the 2010 election of uh, Rick Snyder, who um, ran as a moderate and, and got the um, Republican vote, uh, Republican primary victory, even though he probably only got about a quarter of the Republican voters. He, he ended up with 40 percent of the total vote in that primary. And a lot of that was crossover Democrats and independents voting for him or rather voting against the panoply of um, much more conservative uh, candidates. Uh, so uh, I think it's unlikely that we'll get somebody who's pretty moderate for as the Republican nominee. We'll see. I do think it matters some because after all, if it's a close election, which it may well be, any one thing could make a difference. All of the things that Matt just mentioned, each one of those could be 
uh, very important if it turns out to be a close election, as it may well well be. And I guess the last thing I'll say is the election is more than nine months away. And so many, many things can happen between now and then. Right. I was just going to say um, 2022 has just begun. It is an election year. This will be, of course, an evolving uh, situation and something that I'm sure we'll be discussing uh, more frequently as we move forward. But let's stick to politics now. Um, aside from the state of the state speech and the GM announcement, there was something of a blockbuster announcement about uh, 10 days ago involving the former speaker, Lee Chatfield. And um, with that, I'd like to bring our guest onto the program, Simon Schuster. As I noted, Simon is a former uh, Institute fellow and MSU graduate, and has been involved in Michigan politics as a writer for MERS, uh, the Michigan Information Reporting Service. He's now executive director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. And one of the stories with uh, former Speaker Chatfield that MCFN, Simon and others have once again brought to light are issues with Michigan's campaign finance system, particularly the formation of so-called 501c4 organizations by elected officials to fund various activities outside of holding office. Simon, welcome to the program. Why don't you take a few minutes to discuss the work of MCFN and uh, some of your concerns with these types of organizations and other aspects of Michigan's campaign finance system. Sure, thanks for having me on Arnold. Uh, so the Michigan Campaign Finance Network is a 501c3 organization. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit that sort of uh, works to cast the brightest light possible on the influence of money in Michigan politics. We do this through investigative reporting and then educational outreach. Uh, and we had sort of uh, long been following the impact of Lee Chatfield and his sort of largesse in Michigan politics, because as a Michigan House speaker, he was really known as a prodigious fundraiser. He raised far and away the most uh, money from a leadership pack of any organization. It's important to note that um, these things often translate to influence within a, a caucus. Uh, these packs that uh, members of the legislature uh, raise money for can contribute 10 times the amount that an individual can to a, a campaign committee. So Lee Chatfield was able to sort of raise millions of dollars, more than $5 million, uh, throughout his tenure, and then pass this around to his caucus. And it, it uh, allowed him to accrue enormous influence and power within Lansing. Now, that said, uh, throughout his tenure, he also sort of cast himself with a reputation as someone who is the son of a pastor, uh, comes from humble roots in northern Michigan, and really stayed true to those values uh, throughout his tenure in office. But uh, in, in the wake of these sexual assault allegations, sort of a we, through our reporting, have started to realize that a new picture of the speaker is emerging. Um, for my reporting personally, uh, sort of the, the breadcrumbs here began at the end of his tenure uh, in public office, where I realized that uh, two of his senior most staffers, Anne and Rob Menard, had been running a political consulting firm while in office. Uh, these were two staffers who, in, in the case of Rob Menard, he, oh, he uh, raised more money than the governor and then also um, took in an enormous amount of money through this consulting firm during, uh, while he was also collecting a legislative salary to the tune of more than $1 million. And so these sexual assault allegations against the speaker have sort of uh, reopened this uh, scrutiny into his uh, um, activities while in office. And we're starting to see that Lee Chatfield was someone who traveled prolifically, sort of enjoyed 
luxe or extravagant tastes. And um, we're really starting to see a picture of him where legislators and, and legislative staff are starting to come forward and say this person that was projecting this image while in office was very different. And it was sort of a conflagration of Michigan's lack of transparency laws that allowed him to uh, perpetuate this uh, sort of double life while he was serving the public. What about the general use of 501c4s? I mean, they have become prolific instruments uh, in in the political world, have they not? Right. So uh, it's important to note that campaigns and these leadership packs cannot directly accept corporate contributions. They also have to report all of their contributions and expenditures in a timely manner. And that's exactly what uh, the advantage is with these 501c4 accounts. You can directly accept unlimited corporate contributions. And often there's enormous lag in reporting um, how much money you took in in a given year, and you don't have to report at all uh, the who the specific donors were. So um, that's a, a huge advantage for legislators because then they have an enormous amount of discretion with how they use this money as well. Um, they can use it to pay for travel to and from the office. And uh, they're sometimes referred to as administrative accounts because office holders often use them to uh, for quote unquote administrative expenses. But as we're seeing from this account for uh, the former speaker in particular, there was a, an exorbitant amount of spending, nearly half a million dollars in 2020 alone on the categories of uh, travel, food and entertainment. And so part of the difficulty here is that because of the lack of reporting requirements for legislators, there's not a lot of specificity around how that money was used. And you note uh, transparency uh, as an issue here in Michigan. Um, I believe, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Michigan has ranked in the bottom 10 consistently of states that uh, afford transparency in the area of campaign finance. Your organization and others have consistently offered proposals to uh, shine some light on this. Where do we stand in this area right now? Right. Uh, While MCFN doesn't advocate for specific policies, this is something that we have time and time again come back to because it's a huge limitation in terms of what we can know about who is supporting our elected officials, where they are receiving money and how it's being spent. Um, Michigan does rank 47th out of 50 states in a 2020 assessment of states with anti-corruption measures for public officials. This is the swamp index from the Coalition for Integrity. Um, And there's sort of a, a, a multiple tiers that make uh, what we know about uh, Lee Chatfield and other public officials spending in office really, really difficult to know. Um, Elected officials and staff in the legislature don't have any financial disclosure requirements when entering office. Uh, So that means that there's no reporting of sources of outside income or uh, the reporting of uh, their beneficial interests in LLCs. there are um, no policing of conflicts of interest within statute, so legislature, le- uh, legislators can uh, endorse and vote on bills where they would financially benefit without having to report that. There are House and Senate rules that sort of uh, mandate these requirements, but there's not any legally binding strictures. Um, the legislature and executive branches are also exempt from freedom of information laws. So even if we wanted to go in and sort of uh, after the fact, see what some of these issues might be, we don't know. Uh, we're unable to do so. They can just, uh, they're completely exempt from these laws. And also lobbying disclosures are easily circumvented. Lee Chatfield in this instance was known as a prolific traveler, uh, but we don't have a full picture of what that travel was, where it was going and who was paying for this travel, because Michigan, unlike 
Congress, for example, doesn't require any disclosure of gift travel, any travel paid by a third party. So Michigan has a murkier swamp than DC. That's interesting, Matt. Simon, can you uh, fit this into the broader trends for us? We've heard that uh, there's more money than ever being spent on politics. We've heard maybe more of it's coming from out of state. Maybe there's a lot of small individual donors, a lot of online donors, um, but this seems to be back to the, the same corporate big donors uh, in, in the state. So kind of fit, fit that in with uh, the, the broader trends. Right. I think that's something that uh, you touched on in the, in the prior segment, Matt, is something that I come across time and time again, which is sort of a nationalization um, of not only uh, political trends and people's political interests, but also the money that's sort of fueling our political system. Um, I would say that our largest races in 2020 uh, saw an enormous influx of uh, national money. Um, 2020 was the most expensive election in Michigan's history by a long shot. The prior one was in 2018, uh, where there was a total of $324 million. But in 2020, we saw $533 million spent, according to our analysis. And a large part of this is due to the presidential and U.S. Senate races. Those combined neared almost $400 million. And it is not necessarily because national interests had a lot of stake in the people of Michigan's representation, but more so that the path to the presidency and the path to a Senate majority were seen as going through Michigan in these states. And so in these uh, particular races, even in the U.S. House as well, um, where sort of national interests come across a race where they think that there's particular importance uh, at a larger scale, that's when there is an enormous influx of money uh, from outside spenders. Well, as a uh, former legislator staff, as former legislative staff myself, as I like to say from the previous century, I remember when there were uh, uh, instruments called office holder expense funds, which were actually highly regulated and uh, you had to report there was a limit to how much that could be raised and spent. Uh, and even at that time, Michigan did not have a great record on transparency. And it seems that we've actually taken a few steps backwards here to hear that uh, our swamp is supposedly uh, a bit murkier than even the congressional one that uh, so highly acclaimed to be a swamp. Charlie? Simon, I, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. It, it, I, I'm sure that for you, it must feel like something of an uphill battle because we have such a long history. I don't believe you use the word corruption, but uh, this does seem to me like a, a system that invites corruption. Um, is, is there any prospect that we'll ever get enough um, of the public riled up about this uh, to actually put enough pressure on the political system to change this? Right. And so um, there are sort of individuals within the legislature who are interested in increasing transparency. Um, but really, I think you have to provide strong incentives for legislators. And I think that it's when news comes forward that is unsavory and, and in, a, in a very poor light that makes it more difficult uh, for um, or makes it more difficult for legislators to simply ignore these ongoing issues. Um, I think a part of the difficulty there in that, though, also is term limits, because it takes a while to build up this sort of uh, fundraising prowess and infrastructure. And by the time you really are sort of bringing in these enormous 
numbers, uh, you're nearing the end of your six years in the House or eight years in the Senate. And then you can simply ignore the negative uh, publicity that you're receiving because you're already on your way out or you're maybe moving into the private sector as a lobbyist, um, which, of course, you can do immediately in Michigan. There is no wait period in, uh, instituted like there is in other states. Um, so I, I think in terms of movement toward transparency measures, really, um, I think the nationalization of our politics also makes this more difficult. There's not as much, and also with the deterioration of local media, there's not as much attention paid to statewide issues as there are at the national level. Um, and so I think that there's a, a sort of a number of factors that make this more difficult. Um, the House actually passed legislation uh, this term that would subject the executive branch and um, the legislature to a form of public records law that is sort of self-contained uh, within those branches. Um, but it has sat now uh, in the Senate untouched. Um, the Senate Majority Leader recently referred to himself as a transparency hawk. But without movement on these bills, I think that there's uh, little evidence that that is the case. And given that it is an election year, I doubt we'll see any movement on the bills this year. Although, I want to thank you, Simon, for being with us today, because uh, certainly uh, this is going to bear watching uh, as we move forward here uh, in 2022, uh, given that the governor's office is up, uh, all of our constitutional offices are up, the entire Senate, the entire uh, state house. Um, and so uh, this is going to be an issue uh, to continue to watch uh, moving forward. And I thank you for being with us today and, and for your work. Uh, Matt, Charlie, any, uh, any final thoughts before we close? Well, I'd like to actually give Simon a chance for a final thought just uh, now that we've seen you kind of go from uh, the rough and tumble of Michigan politics uh, back into uh, being a, a, a graduate student and then uh, back. Do you have any advice for those folks that are just entering uh, the, the political realm about how they, they can make a difference? Um, I would say that uh, you can really benefit from some of the programs that IPSR provides, especially the sort of um, for new legislators, the program where you go over the state budget, uh, the, the name is escaping me at the moment. Is this the legislative leadership program? Yes. And that is, I think, a, an enormously valuable experience for legislators. Um, and I think that uh, as with the churn of term limits, it's really, really valuable to have uh, experienced staff. Um, I think that um, one legislator's long view who uh, sort of uh, repeated this to me is that you shouldn't hire friends or family as legislative staff because the people, I think the people that have been there a long time, this is a, you know, a 55, close to $60 billion budget. It may be higher now with, uh, with federal stimulus, but um, uh, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's state government has enormous complexity and the more of a long view you can receive on all of the different programs and departments, uh, the better served you are as an elected official. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Charlie, any final thoughts? Well, I just, uh, I guess I, I want to close by uh, uh, being a cheerleader for, for Simon and, and those who are working to try to improve the degree of transparency in, in, our, in our government. Um, uh, there, there's a huge uh, benefit to be reaped, I believe, if we were to increase transparency ab about these things and, and, if there's any downside, I can't see it. So thank you, Simon, and for all the work you do and really appreciate it. And we're glad that the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research has been able to provide some resources for that. Well, thank you, uh, Charlie. Thank you, Matt. And of course, thank you, Simon. 
that's all the time we have for this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.